Today on The Murder Diaries, we're doing something a little different. We're speaking with Tara Newell, who survived an attack by her stepfather, John Meehan, infamously known around the world as Dirty John. We discuss a wide range of topics, both heavy and lighthearted. The attack, dogs, and her new podcast, The Survivor Squad. Now, here's our conversation with our friend, Tara. And thanks so much for being with us on The Murder Diaries today. Thank Thank you. you so much for having me. Do you mind introducing yourself and a little bit about your story for our listeners? Yeah. So my name is Tara Newell. I am a person, (laughs) I'm a survivor, (laughs) that is the survivor of Dirty John Meehan, who took him down in self-defense. He came after me. My mom had married him. He was a psychopath. She didn't know he was a psychopath. She got into this coercive controlled relationship with him left him for the second time. He ended up coming after me in a parking garage, attacked me with a knife, and I was able to defend myself. And I actually killed him in self-defense. Tara, tell me, how long did it take to get to a point where you could tell it just as eloquently and articulately as you did? Because that is, that's a life-defining moment, beyond life-defining, really. How did you get to that point? Thank you. It took a lot of therapy to get to the place where I wanted to talk about it. I had to get to a place where I thought I was healed in a sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I say that the healing journey is forever ongoing. And so when you're in this trauma and then you get to a good place and then you take on other people's trauma, you realize other triggers that you need to work on. And you also realize how to balance, how to allow other people's trauma in your life and then allow your trauma as well. So I think it took like four years. (laughs) Four years. I feel like it could take a lifetime, you know? So to hear four years, you know, that's so incredible. Like it truly, it's awe-inspiring. Thank you. Well, and I love that you talk about how it could take a lifetime too, because really for anyone who's going through their survivor story and their journey, it doesn't matter that it took four years for me. It doesn't mean it needs to take four years for you. You can take as long as you need to deal with this journey, as long as you're trying to deal with it. That's a great point. It's about putting in that work. Can you talk a little bit about how it's been going through what you've been through and seeing so many people tell your story. As a survivor, you're here and you have the ability to tell it yourself. But a lot of people have adopted it for themselves and told it without any consent on your part. Can you talk about what that's been like and what you've learned in the process? I am a people pleaser. So whenever someone comes to me with, hey, can I cover your story? I always want to be in it and I want to be involved. So I will, I also guess that's a part of me, like wanting to take control of my narrative in a sense, but I always want to say yes to everything. And that's the people pleaser in me. And I always want to do everything on set. And before my incident even happened, I was working on movie sets like a uh, mall cop two. Um, There was different indie films that I worked on. So I was a background person. And for me, I was told to do stuff and I would have to do it to get paid. (laughs) So when I'm a survivor and other people are reaching out and it's other 
news outlets, uh, other podcasts, anywhere, I want to say yes. And then I want to do exactly what they want. And for a while, it took me to understand that that was me going into my trauma responses, the appeasing response. And that is also called the fawn response. But I know a lot of survivors are trying to change the narrative to appease. So I want to try to use that. And so I literally had to learn that I was appeasing to the people on set and people on production. And the producers were asking certain things from me that I didn't necessarily like. But I would do it anyways because I was taught in order to make this production happen, you got to appease and you got to do what the director says. You got to do it because you're the person that they're filming right now. And if you start to be ornery, you don't want to do stuff, then you're not going to work again in that industry. So that's the mentality I had with being a survivor and telling my story. So I felt like I needed to be involved in so many. And then there was a point where I was told by Bravo, you can't do anything more right now because the show's going to come out and we kind of need you to like people to think that you're dead. Wow. Like in order to hear that as a survivor and someone that almost lost their life, it really sucks. But then that also means that I can't be involved with productions that hit me up. And I had to say no to things and a lot of stuff during that time because the documentary was coming out, the show was coming out on Bravo and then on Netflix. Because of that, I couldn't do certain things. And so a lot of this stuff got made during that time. And it just sucks because I would listen to these podcasts, these shows sometimes, and I would have people send it to me all the time. And like, oh, did you see this? Did you see this? And I'm like, oh, no, I I can't because it's so hard to keep up with everything. And then you see it and you listen to it and you're like, oh, that's not true. That's not true. They got that part wrong. It's unfortunate. There's so much information out there sometimes that it gets convoluted. I will say when we're researching for an episode and we're looking at all the information, we can see and feel that now. And it took us kind of years to get there and understanding like when to just leave that information out or finding it in a better place. But sometimes it's either just not there or you can tell when a journalist or somebody has sort of like (laughs) glazed over it. They're putting something out there. They're kind of trying to paint the picture of something but you're like, but what does that mean? Like, I, I can't, use, I wish I had a perfect example right now to paint a better picture. But there are so many times when you're just like, I, I don't, I don't get exactly what they're saying, but they're trying to say something here. <laughs> well, I think of an example, like I'm friends with a producer from Dateline and that's the producer that produced my segment of Dateline. And that producer had these people that were, a forensic analyst and a journalist wife and they had them on and a lot of their information was actually not false. And it's interesting because like these people I've actually not had the greatest interaction with. And then they threatened to come after Collier's podcast for plagiarism and also go after Fox News and everything. For clarity for our listeners, Collier is Tara's podcast co-host. Sorry, keep going. (laughs) So, you know, there's 
people like that, where they put out stuff and then you're like, wait, this isn't true information. But those people have also leaked calls from the court cases of the Lori Vallow trial. So, you know, you have to keep an eye on like what is out there and what is true and what is ethical also. That brings us to like the true crime ethics conversation. There's definitely been a shift from when true crime really hit its fever pitch in 2016 to now in 2023. I think a lot more people in the space are understanding what's appropriate and what's not. But as someone who was thrust into the true crime space, you know, without wanting to be, how have you been handling all of this? How do you, where do you see it going? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I was really lucky in the sense where I had control in the sense of when I could come out with my story. There was reporters contacting me and I was being like, no, I need to deal with my trauma. I need to deal with this. Or I don't think I would even respond to people sometimes. They would hit me up. I don't need to respond to them. They don't need to hit me up for this. They don't need to talk about my trauma if I don't want them to, you know? So I got to the place where I needed to go through at least like six months of healing and then stuff got bad. (laughs) I got into a fight with my sister. The cops were called. And then I actually went to Austin, Texas. I was very religious during this time and I was going to church three days a week. I was praying all the time and I just had the answer to tell my story. So in that sense, I was lucky where I had the consent in that nature, where there are so many people like Kim Goldman, she's on the podcast, Rita Isbell. They were just thrown into it because their brothers were killed. And so these cases get highly publicized and literally these people are thrown into it so I'm like I'm not I wasn't thrown into it the sense that like my story just became public in that sense like I was contacted by the LA Times and then I was like okay you guys can cover my story I'll engage with you guys I was thankful for that, thankful for that narrative. However, that was Christopher Gothard taking that story and doing his own narrative and research. And I say that his research is on point. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows John like that guy. Um, and I mean, right? Like he he talked to so many people. He was in months and months and months of research. And like, I think he probably, I I wonder if he has files still on John, but like he had recordings from everyone. And so he was really the person to have everyone's story and piece it all together. It's unfortunate because I truly believe that my story wouldn't have blown up if I hadn't killed him in self-defense. Or maybe it would have blown up later down the line because I think that the show Dirty John really touched the sense of abuse and the coercive control. And then after that, there was like a frenzy of like these shows and like the word Dirty John I swear, it's like in the Urban Dictionary. <laughs> it kind of is. It's like, oh, he's like a dirty John. It's it's a thing. It absolutely is. 
But it's unfortunate to me because that's my attacker's name. Mm -hmm. And that is who, that's Tanya's abuser. That's my mom's abuser. To be honest, Tanya came up with the name. And so she gets credit for all of that. But how does it feel going out, watching TV, and then literally on the TV, you're like, oh, they just said my attacker's name because they're talking about a bad guy or a guy that's like a cheater. It's like a, um, it's almost like a subtitle now where it's like, you know, Dirty John. And then it's like, then comes a subtitle of like what it's actually about. And it's like, okay, well then it's not John Meehan. Like it's, you know, and yeah, I, I could see where that could be, and please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong ever, but like, I could see where that could be re-traumatizing or just like, you're trying to have a normal day and then you see it pop up on your Netflix feed and you're like, hi, I'm Tara. No, thank you. Like, (laughs) yeah, I'm like, I'm just trying to watch Pivot right now. Yeah. I don't need, I don't need, I don't need this in the grocery store where she mentioned Dirty John. And I'm like, oh my God, like I was just trying to decompress right now. And these girls are so funny, but it's funny because then I go and follow them. I kind of get excited in the sense, hoping that they might like want to support survivors or something. And no one gets a follow or anything because, well, like they're barely on their Instagram. Like actors are work like dogs. (laughs) Does part of you ever feel like a sense of regret to have given that journalist the okay to go ahead and report on your story because of what it's turned into. I'm just wondering, like, if you ever wonder what your life would be like if you hadn't gone public with your story, if it hadn't. I honestly have no idea, but I, I don't believe in going back in a time machine and do anything to change the future. I, unless it's like a very terrible thing, you know, but this has been such a blessing in disguise because I am very proud of the exposure that it has gotten and that it was turned into those articles. I do believe it was still expectation in a sense because that podcast has over 90 million listens. I did not see a dime from that. So I mean, if you sell a podcast and you end up having 90 million listens, like how much would that podcast sell for? You know, how much would you make an ad revenue? Like that's so much. And it's funny to me because the LA Times is going bankrupt before Dirty John came out. And I haven't heard of anything of them having to file. It revitalized them. Yes. It changed the narrative because that was their very, very first podcast that they did. They literally changed it. It was supposed to just be the series of articles for the LA Times. And they changed it into a podcast like one or two weeks beforehand. I forget exactly the timing where Christopher Gothard was like, hey, we're going to make this into a podcast. And I was like, oh, a church sermon? Okay. (laughs) Because that's like I went to church and that's what they put their sermons on. So that was what I thought a podcast was. I didn't know it was something like a TV show is now. Mm -hmm. So there's this element of, at the time, not even knowing what that means, nonetheless knowing the potential for 90 million 
downloads and not getting a cent for it. Yeah. And nothing was signed. Nothing was signed until they started talking about the Dirty John production. And then they were lowballing us numbers. And then I told them I was going to go shop it to different networks and get a different agent. Good for you. Thank you. But then they told me that it was already sold to Bravo for two seasons. So in order for me to like do all that, yes, I could have got it sold for higher, like more money and stuff. But here's the thing. If I got it sold, there's a chance that that production company could never sell it to a network to get it produced. And so that's something I had enough information about that and knowing enough about the industry that I was talking to all my friends about that, that I couldn't really go get an agent and go shop this deal because I would be competing with that show. And I mean, I could have done that. It could have been, honestly, if I say for people to probably do that now, that probably is going to make a lot of waves, but you had the chance of it not being seen and other people not knowing how to get out of a toxic relationship or not knowing the abuse signs. So, you know, you have to kind of weigh your pros and your cons there. It sounds like they almost steamrolled you though. Well, that's that's what producers do. That's what these agents do. You know, this is Hollywood. Like, they're trying to get everyone's story for as less as they can. And I'm thankful that I said no a few times, and then they gave me a higher number. And, you know, that number, that money I don't have anymore because we live in California. It's long gone. <laughs> we can relate. You, you bought eggs or paid for gas. Yeah. <laughs> I, I paid for rent for a year and I bought groceries. And then I actually, I did take myself to Thailand and Australia and New Zealand, but I deserve that after the hell I went through. Oh, it's like an Absolutely. eBay love moment. <laughs> Finding yourself now as a survivor, maybe. Does that sound right? Yeah. And I've always wanted to travel the world and see things that were not in my culture and not in my element. And because I think that in the United States, we're so sheltered to so many things. And I wanted to see what other countries were like, what other people were like. I wanted to learn. I wanted to grow. So eat, pray, love for sure. (laughs) But then it's interesting, like cases like Amanda Knox. Like she goes to a different country and then she has a different experience. You don't want those experiences. And she's actually an episode on the podcast. Well, she's a guest on the podcast. Sorry, not an episode. No one's an episode. (laughs) We we have to work through all of that. Like um, lingo. Yeah. (laughs) And labeling too. We're like her episode. Like it just, it's this idea of the post 2016 to like 20. 19 era of true crime of understanding and getting back to the ethics of it all and being and trying to be on the forefront and and working through these things might lingo change and become even different because of you know experiences and feedback of of people and survivors and and um by survivors i'm also including victim families yeah. Yeah, it might continue to change, but I think that's part of of where we all are as podcasts right now. And I think yeah. like what we keep learning is everyone's going to make mistakes and have missteps in how they go about it, but having that um ability to learn and grow and move on and do the right thing from then on once you know better. 
makes all the difference. Yeah, that's called empathy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And feeling... And accountability. Yes, empathy and accountability, which makes two traits that you're not a narcissist. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Sometimes you just never know. (laughs) Well, I always hear if you're asking if you're a narcissist, you're not one. So we're all in the clear. Yes. I do know that because a lot of people know your story, a lot of our listeners are probably wondering what I'm wondering. Can you talk a little bit about Cash and what he was like, your puppy who helped save your life? If you're comfortable, of course, I never want to touch on anything that makes you, you know, sad or relive something you don't want to, but we're such huge dog people. You know this because we talk about the recording. (laughs) Yeah, no, I just had to like stop myself from crying because I just love, he he passed away. So I like, I just was never so attached to a dog because Mm -hmm. of what I experienced with him. And at one point it felt as if he was the only one that got what I was going through because he was the only one that like was with me there. So. I appreciate him so much being there with me in that. I cannot thank him enough for that. He's given me such a gift with life. And I mean, I have pictures of him throughout the entire house. Um, I'm really appreciative of the followers and support that I have too, because when he did pass, I was able to get $8,000 to take care of him, to have like an extra month with him. Wow. And I could not do that without the platform that I've been given and without that support. So I am incredibly thankful to all my followers and like, well, there a lot of them are friends in a sense because we do chit chat, we do connect. But I'm so thankful for them because I would have never been able to have that time without them. Mm-hmm. Sorry, was, no, please. Like that's I literally cry about my dog passing, and she's 11 months. So <laughs> I literally have cried about it. I'm not gonna lie. And I do have a soul dog um, up in heaven as well. Her name is Daisy. And something, you know, it's from TikTok, but it was an animal communicator. And I I can get into some of the kind of like woo-woo stuff sometimes. And I love that kind of stuff. And she was mentioning that your dogs up in heaven will send you your new pets. And it just makes me feel that much more connected, like, feeling like my soul dog up in heaven, like sent me my new little girl here, you know? And so I feel like that's like cash money up there looking down on you and we'll be sending you, you know, the pets that he does bring to your life because you have such a connection going on with pets in other areas of your life and your own other, the pup you have now, Dixon. So I was just going to say, I like to look at our past pups as guardian angels. Yeah. Always looking out for us. And I, I think Cash was your guardian angel on earth and in heaven now. He is always protecting his mama. A hundred percent. And I'll tell you some woo-woo sh- too. Because I'm here for it. Cash passed away the same day that this guy hit me with a car. And I was like, in it, like I was never in a relationship with this guy. 
However, he was in this cat and mouse game with me. Mm -hmm. And I was with him for 10 years on and off. So that guy died of a fentanyl overdose. And Cash died the same day as him. And that guy, like, hit me with a car. Like, so (laughs) Cash was up there the day that he needed to because he needed to protect me in the afterlife now Mm -hmm. because I'm very connected to that as well. Unfortunately, fortunately, sometimes. (laughs) Has Cash, and you totally don't have to answer this, but has Cash ever visited you in a dream? Not dreams. I can actually call in his energy. Uh, Because like I did my yoga teacher training right after Cash passed away. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of exercises of like imagining like you're someone by you, like a guardian. I would always bring him in. And then the teacher would be like, there's a dog in the room right now. And I'd be like, there's Cash. (laughs) That's so interesting. Because so it wasn't even just like you saying, oh, I feel Cash. It's like the other teacher's like, there's a dog. That's yeah. actually pretty incredible. This this is the kind yeah. of stuff that like trips me out. Like I love that. Well, yeah. it's just interesting because like I don't know if you've held I don't know if you've held a body when it's died. <laughs> well, I held John's body when he was falling on top of me, like mm-hmm. losing life. He actually they revived him and then he later died in the hospital a couple days later because his uh sisters pulled the plug but he was Mm -hmm. brain dead so like just that there's like an energy that kind of leaves and then you just like it it's it's weird because it almost feels like that energy is weightless and then when it comes it when it detaches like the body is like dead weight And it's just like, it's an interesting feeling. But like when Cash passed away, I was holding him because we gave him the anesthesia because he had a brain tumor and he was seizing and having seven minute seizures. Um, So I was holding him and they gave him the stuff. And then when his body, like you just felt the energy detach from it. Mm-hmm. And it was weird because I was so emotional and then that happened. And then I was like, he's not here anymore. Mm-hmm. He's not in this vessel. You knew. I don't, I don't know what I'm holding on to right now. I just let it go. And then I walked away with peace. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because, well, with Cash, it was also different because he was seizing. And so you never loved seeing your child in pain like it's the worst thing and so it's almost like a relief that you don't have to have them hurt anymore Mm -hmm. and then it's like that weight is lifted that weight is separated and then you're just like oh wow okay calling it a vessel feels like the perfect description of it too because I was in the room when my grandfather passed away like the whole family was and it was very like you could feel that energy of he's here and now he's not. And even just like um, at the funeral, I remember seeing him, he had an open casket and I went and gave his body a kiss, but it wasn't him. It was just this body that I recognized. I recognized his face. I recognized, you know, his little smile, his bald head, but it wasn't him. It was, it's very strange and it's, kind of hard to wrap your mind around unless you've had some sort of experience with it. 
Yeah. Like death affects everyone. And I think that this is why true crime is so popular is because this is the moment that is like the saddest moment of our lives. And for someone to take someone else's life. So how dare someone to do that? How can someone do that? And we need to have so much understanding of this. Yeah. And I I think there's always that fear of, you know, we're all born into this world, but no one knows how for the most part, how you're going to leave. And it, it's that unknown of how is my journey going to be completed? It, and we go into each day, you know, with this uncertainty. And like, before we went on our Zoom, I had told Paige, I said, you know, I can't imagine how Tara must have felt that day because she woke up, put her shoes on like every other day and didn't expect her life to be completely flipped upside down. And you didn't ask for this. This man came at you and you were in fight or flight. You were fighting literally for your life. And that's not something you expected ever to happen when you woke up that morning. Well, I mean, my intuitive ass knew. (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that? If you're comfortable, of course. Yeah, no, I had a dream where I was literally stabbing him, killing him. Okay, I've never heard about this. Well, some people take it out because it's too like woohoo, you know? But it's crazy because it's straight my intuition. It happened exactly like I saw it in a dream. I wrote, and they did talk about this a little bit in the podcast because my ex-boyfriend did come on the podcast and talk about this. I wrote him a letter saying, basically, I think I'm going to die. You get ownership of cash, our dog. (laughs) Well, because we were broken up and I had the dog. So I was like, okay, like I'm going through everything. Okay. I want him to have the dog. I want my sister to take care of the cat and maybe find it another home because I don't want her to keep the cat. And so I was going through what I needed to do to prepare if I were to die. You basically made a living will. Yes. And I went and I stayed at my ex-boyfriend's house, which what it was funny because it was... Uh, have you guys seen Atypical? I've heard of it, but haven't watched it yet. Love that show. Or United States of Terra. Love that show. Oh my God. It was so good. I went and I stayed at the son's, like the person who plays uh, the main character in Atypical and here. I stayed at his house because that was his best friend. And so I was staying there like, and it was funny too, because Kira didn't know I was there, (laughs) but Jimmy had me over and he was like, okay, you're going to stay here because like, you know, you're in fear tonight. And so I literally stayed there talking about how John was going to come after me, how I was so in fear for my life. And it's crazy because I knew this was happening. And right after my attack, I called my mom on the phone and I told her, I was like, I'm so sorry I killed your husband. I knew he would do this. Then she goes and apologizes to me and it's, we're hysterical, but like, I, I knew this was going to happen. And we, we told the cops, we tried to warn them too. We called the cops We had a case for John lighting my mom's car on fire. My high school officer had that case. So he knew exactly who I was. That officer went on, I think it was two or three vacations during that time. So he never went and arrested John. 
John was also in Nevada and then sometimes in Irvine and Newport and all the Southern California areas. And he was stalking us too at the same time. So, I mean, it was also hard to get a hold of John because John was also in never one spot. However, if we're making so many complaints to the cops and things aren't happening, and then this guy comes after me and tries to kill me, you bet your lucky stars I didn't sue them. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate because I want everyone to know this just in case they're in any type of situation. In the state of California, you have up to a year to sue the police for any wrongful thing during a situation like that. The statute of limitations is one year. One year. I think it's like one year or 16 months. but. It's a very short amount of time if you get pulled over. If you anything happens to you with a cop, that's the time that you have to make a case or like to make a report on that. Do you feel like that's enough time? No, because you're in shock. You're in shock after your trauma happens. And for me, it took like I had the lifeguard girl, Skylar. I had her mad at me. For me not reaching out to her, thanking her for everything she's done. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Wait, who is she? The lifeguard girl. Um, she came up, she was like the third person to show up, but in many series, it also kind of makes her seem like she's the first person and only person to show up, which I, I am very thankful for. I'm very thankful that she was there and how she was However, I'm not responsible for her trauma. You know, I get that she came down to help me in my attack and she saw my attack. However, I didn't ask for my attack to happen and I didn't ask for it to bring her trauma. And I didn't even know it was going to bring her trauma, to be honest, because I just killed someone. And so I was only thinking about oh my gosh, I just killed someone. What if this person has a family? What if there's people that have to mourn for him? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not thinking about her, unfortunately. I'm thinking about the person that I just killed. And you were still in survival mode. You were trying to survive the aftershocks of what had happened. Yeah. And anybody who questions that, then they should think they're lucky stars that they don't have to know what that's like to have your life so on the line that you had to kill someone in self-defense. And he didn't pass away for a few more days. So during that time, I guess this kind of almost leads to a question too. During that time, did you have an idea of what his current state was, if he was going to survive or not? Or were you already pretty sure that he was gone and it was kind of like modern medicine kind of doing its thing for a bit. I did know about his status because my mom like would go with his sisters to go like check, not like make sure he was okay, but like kind of make sure he was there. She's sussing everything out at this time too. Like, yeah. And she's going through the motions and like my sister and I didn't want her to be responsible for his life. And because that was his wife, Legally, she was responsible for that. So we had her sign over his life rights 
to his sisters. That was smart. Well, like, it's just like, it, it honestly would look so bad too if we had her pull the plug. Well, and she doesn't need that responsibility. She was in love with him. What was your relationship with his sisters after that? Like, or the your family's relationship with his family? Because obviously she's still on good enough terms to go to the hospital with his sisters. But after that, did they keep in contact? Like, what is So that my like? mom and their sisters were very close at a time, especially with, with one of the sisters. I actually just talked to the other one the other day. And I hadn't talked to her in years. And she let me know that she supports me no matter what. And I was very thankful for that. She also let me know that the other family may have a little bit of a different of opinion, which I'm thankful with the time that I heard that because there's been enough time for me to separate everyone's feelings and know what I did was right. If I heard that right after my attack, I probably wouldn't have been okay. But because I heard that later on, I was like, okay, like everybody has to mourn and everybody has to go through their emotions. Like one of the siblings doesn't even talk to one of their mothers because she supports us. So, you know, this family has been through a lot themselves and I'm so thankful for their support. Well, for the ones that I have. (laughs) And I want to just respect the way that the other ones feel because I understand that they may have had a different relationship with John. And this is also why I feel a little bit differently about like the Mendendez brother. I can never say their name, right? The Mendendez brother murders and stuff because, you know, I was abused as a child, not like the same abuse that they had and whatnot. However, I don't think it's okay to plot to make a plan to murder someone. You know, in my circumstance, in my case, this guy came after me. He brought the knife. I had no choice but to protect myself. And if I didn't, I would be dead. When you're a grown-up, you have a choice how to deal with your trauma. And you can either move on, heal from it, grow from it, share your story, or not share your story. However, you need to grow you need to grow and move on from it. And for me, that is not plotting to murder someone because for anyone that has that brain to go to plot to murder someone, that person would not be a beneficial person to society for me, if that makes sense. For any of our listeners that may be survivors themselves in any capacity, what do you do you have any advice for them on their healing process and what's helped you? Not necessarily, like not everything that worked for you will work for everyone, but just can you talk a little bit about what helped you and maybe what may help others? So I will say I do recommend two things for everyone. And I think that this is really important for everyone to know in their healing process. And I do think that healing is not linear. So what may work for everyone may not work for someone else. However, these are two important qualities that we do not know or not everybody may know in society. So we are not breathing correctly. (laughs) Most of us are not. So we need to breathe out of our stomachs and our diaphragm opposed to breathing out of our chest. And when we breathe out of our chest, you have to realize like you're doing so much of that and you're bringing tension into your chest. 
And so that's creating more tightness. And then you're not moving your trauma throughout the body as much too. When you are breathing from your diaphragm, you're also learning how to control the breath a little bit more. So just learning basic breath work is super helpful for anyone struggling with trauma. Because when you work on your exhalation of the breath, that is what controls the heart rate and what controls your mind and your thoughts and all of that. So when you're working on your breath and the exhalation, that's what's helping control. And have a good resource on where we can learn breath work or is that mostly through therapy? I know I'm sitting here like feeling how I'm breathing. I'm like trying to breathe out of my stomach, but it's my chest. So I'm very like into this. Breathing from you, you have to try and get in touch with your body. And every time I do, I'm like, am I doing it right? (laughs) It's like, how have I been breathing for 34 years? Like, I guess I've been doing it wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to break this news to you. (laughs) (laughs) So where do we learn how to breathe? (laughs) So you can check out uh, Wim Hof is a great person for breath work. Um, He also kind of goes into the ice baths and all that. So that may be too intense for you. You know, just starting to breathe out of your stomach. Go on YouTube. There's great videos on YouTube. So the second thing is learning about your nervous system and learning about what responses you go to. You know, there's the fight, flight, freeze, fawn response, which the fawn response is also the appease response. So learning about the nervous system and what responses you go to, because that is going to help you when you get triggered. I've been learning a lot about the vagus nerve and I do get anxiety. So I have used like a cold, like a bag of frozen broccoli or peas on that, like before work one day when I was just anxious and going like, oh, you know, how do I deal with today? It really works. When you bring that ice to your chest or to really anywhere in your body, it's actually shocking your nervous system. So it's shocking that automatic nervous system that's making you go into that fight, flight, freeze, bond response. And so when you're doing that, it's actually slowing down your heart rate. So you're able to actually breathe and focus on that spot because when you're in your fight or flight mode, your nervous system is on hijack. Mm -hmm. So there's only certain functions that are on right now. And so when you're bringing that ice to your chest, you're also reminding yourself that you have another sin and then you're bringing that function back on. And so your body's slowly like coming back on and processing through working through that fight or flight freeze bond mode, you know? Kind of like you restarted a computer. You're restarting it. Yeah. And that's why I do coaching too. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so intrigued. And I feel like, you know, in this modern world, probably globally, of course, but speaking from an American experience, I feel like we're more stressed out than we've ever been. Everybody is tapped out. (laughs) Gen X, millennials, and older Gen Z, we have lived... Not the younger Gen Z. (laughs) They know how to let it go. They're still teenagers and they kind of are just like, whatever. But like we've all, we've lived through a lot of stuff that shocked our system really young. And listen, baby boomers went through a lot too, but they were a little bit older. They processed differently. They weren't at school on 9-11 thinking, but like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> So like, it's just, 
it's wild, you know? And so I feel like so, so many of us never learned because baby boomer parents didn't, a lot of them didn't teach us because they didn't grow up knowing from their silent gen or greatest gen parents. And so I feel like we're just like more stressed out than ever on top of just the demands of late stage capitalism, you know? So it's yeah. wild out here and, and it's so great to have people like you talking about it. Like it's so normal because it should be normal to be like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to put some peas on my chest right now. Instead of it being weird or woo woo or like, does that really work? It's like, that's an okay thing to do. If you're feeling stressed out about going to work that day, like it's just normal, breathe through it and know that it's okay to feel anxious and restart yourself. Just like it's normal for a computer that's been on for three days to kind of wig out. You don't think of it weird then. So why is it weird for you? Yeah. Or it's absolutely okay to like take a pause and be like, I'm angry right now in this situation. Let me take a step back, do some breathing exercises and come back to this conversation so that I can handle it better. Tara, do you mind telling us about your podcast that you just launched? Yes. So it is called Survivor Squad Podcast. It is me and my host, Collier Landry. Collier Landry is also a survivor. I'll let you guys tune into the podcast and know a little bit about him, but his story is intense and I cannot be happier to have him as my partner because there's like these six degrees of separation where like his dad worked with Tanya's husband, which was John's ex-wife's husband. So like there's all these six degrees of separation and Tanya's ex-husband's like from Mansfield, Ohio, where my podcast partner is from. And then on the podcast, we just launched not too long ago. So the first guest was Jennifer Faison. She is from the Betrayal podcast. She has an intense story and she really drew a lot of inspiration from Dirty John, which I think is amazing. And I cannot be happier to have that as a result. Then we have John Fink. He was shot and kidnapped in New Orleans. Then we have Margaret Cho. She's a comedian. She's really funny. And then we have next week is Rita Isabel. Her brother was killed by Jeffrey Dahmer. And then we have a lineup of so many more guests that are amazing. Where can our listeners find you on social media? You can find me at Tara Newell, T-E-R-R-A-N-E-W-E-L-L. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. Those are my two main platforms. Then I also have YouTube videos. You could see me do makeup, talk about true crime a little bit. I don't, I only talk about perpetrators in a sense, because I feel that it's important for the survivors to share their stories. And then you could basically go to my website. If you guys want to come on Survivor Squad, have a story to tell, we just want to connect with as many survivors as possible. So please send us an email and yeah. And then your Instagram for Survivor Squad is Survivor Squad. So our Instagram for Survivor Squad is Survivor Squad Pod. So you guys could check us out there on Instagram and you guys get all the updates. And then our Patreon has that exclusive content there. Is there anything else that you want to let our listeners know? I just thank you guys for supporting me on this podcast and going to check out Survivor Squad if you guys feel inclined to. Every listen helps a survivor's story be seen. So I want to thank everyone for their support. Make sure you go and give Tara and Survivor Squad a follow. Check out their content. 
And a big thank you to Tara for joining us today. Thanks so much, Tara. And until next time, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.